You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hi, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're talking with another Regent alum who's doing interesting things uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we're talking with Morgan Wills. And so if you've been at Regent in the last maybe decade, you might have come across Morgan because he was here in 2009 to 2010. And he's currently the president and CEO of Siloam Health, which is a non-profit multi-site healthcare organisation that serves Nashville's underserved uninsured and culturally marginalised people in that area, which is about 80 nationalities. So he he studied at Princeton, at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He's got his MA from Regent College and he's a fellow of the American College of Physicians and a graduate of Leadership Nashville and Nashville Healthcare Council Fellows Program. And he's married to a Canadian and has three uh, emerging adult children who are half half and half Canadian and American what a great combo um, so we had a, just a wonderful conversation with Morgan about the work that he's doing about um, sort of holistic healthcare and culturally inclusive or as he sort of likes to say uh, culturally humble or cultural humility in the way that they practice healthcare with a diversity of populations mm-hmm. in Nashville uh, and how do you sustain this work that sounds really good um, and beautiful, but it's it takes more time? And yeah. so, how do you how do you sustain that? And so, we we just talked to him about that and how that's kind of really rooted out of it's really rooted in the biblical story. Yeah, it was so interesting talking with Dr. Wills. He's just got a great perspective on how to provide care in the healthcare industry, mm-hmm. and you know. He's coming from the American perspective and we're here in Canada and there's kind of two understandings of what healthcare is. And um, But ultimately, I think what Salome and there's other organizations that are doing it too, but just calling us back to how hospitals originally began, how mm. they originally began to care for people and treat people as as real people and not fragmented people, which is what we discuss. And so we get into all this. Mm-hmm. You're going to enjoy it. So we hope you do. Enjoy our conversation with Dr. Morgan Mills. Morgan, welcome to the Region College Podcast. I'm glad to be with you. We're glad to be. We're glad to have yes. you. Do you know what I'm? I'm. I'm loving when we get a good southerner on there. That we get a good another mm, good southern mm-hmm. accent between mine and yours. You know, yeah. two kind of different kinds of southern. It's good. Yeah, I've been married to a Canadian too long. I've lost some of my southern accent. Uh, I'm oh. to pull it out. Hold it on. Yeah, just bring yeah. it. Bring it on. Don't lose it. So Morgan, tell us tell us a little bit about sort of your your journey to Regent. You're a Regent grad, sort of your journey to Regent, and then from there, from Regent into the work that you're doing, or from the work that you were doing to Regent, and then back again. Just give us a sense of your journey and what how that's been. Yeah, well, you know, I am uh, all jokes about married to Canadian aside. I'm I'm pretty deeply rooted here in Tennessee. I'm a mm-hmm. Uh, ninth generation uh, Nashvilleian, um, so have grown up. Um, really enjoyed the fruits of that stability, and you know, having uh, family and everything. But I, I went away for school and uh, uh, studied in New Jersey, and then 
was I met people in college who had traveled overseas before they had started a career um, or settled down into a family. And I really got a wanderlust and mm. um, got a passion to do what a lot of Aussies and Kiwis do, which <laughs> is to take a year abroad um, yeah. and um, really got a backpack and headed east and wow. uh, with, with a friend and sort of chartered a, a path from Europe to Africa and um, kind of open-ended, but I, I did some volunteer work in Africa and Ghana uh, mm-hmm. during that year as a, as a part of a practice to kind of go deeper in one culture mm-hmm. and, uh, and really was just totally touched and transformed by my experience living with a, a community of African Christians um, mm-hmm. uh, at the time, one of whom we knew that was my contact. He had studied in the United States and had gone on to become a physician. Mm-hmm. And um, and had gone back to Ghana when it was one of the five poorest countries in the world and mm-hmm. you know, kind of reverse brain drain going and taking that mm-hmm. um, training he'd gotten. And that that really opened my eyes and my imagination to think about my career mm-hmm. in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been a history major in college. Uh, I took physics for poets, pass, fail. Um, you know, I, I really avoided the pre-med track because I saw all the neuroses and the, you know, the the stress, you know, coming out of the ears of, of friends who were doing that. So it really hadn't been part of my paradigm. Um, and it still wasn't after my time in, in Ghana, but I, I left with a, a vibrant relationship with Jesus that mm. I never really had uh, before mm. then. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then traveled through a whole host of other countries in Africa and Asia where I met other people um, who had experienced Christ in the same way. And mm. um, of all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, to, to borrow the phrase from the yeah. book of Revelations. And, and so that kind of ruined me. Uh, I came back to Nashville. I, I loved, you know, being a part of this community, but I, I had a truly global and, and kind of cosmic, you know, kind of yeah. uh, uh, vision of what I wanted my life to be about. And, and probably more importantly than anything, had learned to pray and, um, and, to, and to expect God to, to lead. And, and so it was through that process of discernment that I went back and and discovered some gifts that could be used in the profession of medicine, wow. uh, both uh, scientific understanding, but also relational skills, and mm-hmm. uh, and went back and immersed myself in all the, the prerequisites for that, studied at Vanderbilt, um, okay. and, uh, and then trained in internal medicine at Vanderbilt as well, and have been practicing for most of my career here in Nashville, yeah. uh, as we'll talk about later, you know, with a predominantly international population mm-hmm. um, at, a, at a nonprofit health center called Siloam Health. And, mm. uh, and after practicing at Siloam for about 10 years, um, an opportunity arose for me to take some time away. Um, we, we had a former student and resident who had trained with us who really was looking to come and join our team at our nonprofit health center. And, and, um, and we didn't have a job for her. We didn't have an open as, uh, as I prayed about it, I it talked to my wife, who was from Canada and had dutifully lived in my hometown for <laughs> yeah. many years. Uh, we, we talked about that idea we'd once had to do a sabbatical year with our kids before they were old enough to not want to be with us. So um, we um, explored a lot of areas and, and I had a friend who had graduated from Regent and the idea of studying at an internationally focused uh, graduate school uh, in mm-hmm. Canada, where we could connect with her homeland, um, some family that lived out that way. 
and then also just the vocational nature of region, you know, kind of yeah. being focused on, on uh, lay people largely, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Jenny McLaurin, who you interviewed yeah. recently, mm-hmm. I met her on a visit out there and I was like, okay, the, there's a physician who's the Dean of students. Mm-hmm. I, this is a place this I can study yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so the Lord worked a lot of things out for us mm. to, to spend a year um, living there. Uh, hard year in many ways, really hard year, but also a very life-giving year. And sometimes mm-hmm. I guess we realize that goes together. That's kind of the region right. DNA, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, but eventually uh, moved back at the end of that year after being sorely tempted to uh set up camp there, like uh, Peter, James, and John, you know, wanting to, <laughs> yeah, to stay uh, on that mountain. Put yeah. a tent up there on that mountain, on, on Grouse Mountain. Um, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and found a new role, a new opportunity at Salome mm-hmm. after that. And then eventually picked away at my, at my master's. And, and, and it wasn't about the degree, though. It was mm-hmm. more about a, a life opportunity as a somebody who had really moved into my profession at a, as a relatively young Christian, you know, having mm. really experienced that transformation after college, mm. uh, I just deeply yearned to get some deeper study and, and to build the root system for all that God was, you know, unveiling to me in, in real time. Uh, and so that was just a huge blessing uh, mm-hmm. in my life and, and informed my practice and my, my, my vocation here in ways that I could never have expected to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't you tell us, Morgan, what, what does Salome mean and how did that name, why is that name attached to the work that you're doing? And maybe give us a sense of sort of what Salome is doing and what, 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 what sort of medicine you're practicing. Yeah, well, um, Salome, you know, technically is an Aramaic word that means sent. So if mm. you read the Gospel of John chapter 9, we get that helpful parentheses in the text there. I, I studied no Aramaic at a region. I studied just the minimum amount of Hebrew and Greek in that Rick Watts class uh, of one, sem- one semester. But um, uh, but I'm I'm told by the scholars that it, it comes from the word referring to when King Hezekiah dug a tunnel mm-hmm. uh, to help provide a more secure water supply for mm-hmm. Jerusalem in the event of a siege. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Pool of Siloam was a, really a cistern. It gathered the waters that came from outside the city walls. Um, and it's the place where, as Jesus is getting into hot water uh, for his all his statements um, about who he is and what mm. he came for, uh, he sort of gives an object lesson about what he came for with a blind man mm. who he encounters on the side of the road. Um, and I think our founders, and I was not the founder of Salome, I came in as the first staff physician, uh, and I now serve as the CEO of the organization, but but our founders chose that that word, I think, because of the nature of that story. Mm. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, encounters this blind man, and he's got a gaggle of disciples with him, much like a doctor would have medical students following them through the hospital and yeah. in the wards, and, and they, they say, okay, Rabbi, um, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they're developing a differential diagnosis for this condition using the best explanatory hypotheses at their fingertips. And uh, the doctor, the teacher, you know, Jesus looks back at them and says, well, neither. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And he spits on the ground, makes a poultice of mud, puts it on his eyes and sends him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. 
And it's actually, I think, one of the longest stories in Gospels. It's mm. quite an involved mm. story. Mm-hmm. It involves him going on and getting healed, getting a lot of pushback from his community. Like, what happened? And uh, and and particularly the, the religious establishment, which is incredibly frustrated that this happened on the Sabbath. And uh, mm-hmm. they get focusing on the minors uh, of that and have an encounter with Jesus himself towards the end of the, the story. Uh, but but this man is eventually restored to his community. He's restored to his relationship with God. As w- so there's this multiple layers of healing I think they were trying to convey mm. because uh, several of the physicians and others who helped start Salome, you know, they worked in the existing uh, healthcare system as it was in Nashville, Tennessee at the time and, and had worked elsewhere and just saw the repeated cycle of poverty breeding sickness and sickness breeding poverty mm. and treating medical conditions quite superficially, getting people out the door, you know, out of the emergency room and then seeing them circle back, you know, uh, 30 days later uh, for a variation of the same problem. Mm. Not having primary care, not having a relationship, a medical home, uh, not having insurance Mm. uh, and often not addressing the the multifactorial, emotional, financial Mm -hmm. and spiritual factors that drive their health conditions. Yeah. And so that was the heart of why Salome was planted by one particular church that saw yeah. this need and but always had a vision for it to grow and be more ecumenical and and not just uh, mm-hmm. a single church's ministry but you know healthcare has always been a ministry of the church up until just the last century. Mm-hmm. And um and so really trying to reclaim yep. some of that mandate in the midst of this brokenness that they were perceiving. Mm-hmm. And the Salome story seemed to yeah. capture that uh, yeah. away. That's so beautiful. So yeah, beautiful. I love that story um that you that you just told of of Jesus healing that man and just kind of the disciples response to and also our culture response of wanting to compartmentalize and diagnose and fragment almost and Siloam's mission in the whole person care. But can you just kind of elaborate a little bit more about what exactly that means and then also what it looks like practically for Siloam and for you guys? Yeah, well, you know, um, you know, health is fabulously hard to define, right? Um, and it it ble- ble- blends over into so many domains. Um, and uh, I think we tend to focus on the ones that we can measure and the ones that we can manipulate and, uh, and impact and create a measurable outcome in. And so a, a lot of the Western medical tradition in the past 150 years has really lasered in on mm-hmm. uh, physical health, biomedical health, um, reducing health to quantifiable changes we can make in our physical status. And that's really powerful. Uh, it's been incredibly helpful in, in for human flourishing to be able mm. to, to treat conditions the way we can that our just our parents or their grand, their parents could never have imagined mm-hmm. um, to come up with a vaccine to, to fight COVID in a f- mm. you know, few months time because we can manipulate mRNA to do right. that. So all that is so helpful and good. And yet at the same time, uh, the story of Western medicine, powerful as it is, is is incomplete. It's not telling the whole story of human health. Um, And I think whole person care is just the language we landed on after really trying uh, Mm. to to come up with a way to describe what we were doing. Uh, Mm. Even though at the very beginning in Salome's charter, when it was officially incorporated as a nonprofit, the first purpose it was chartered for was to share the love and compassion of Jesus Christ with those who are physically ill, 
spiritually searching, emotionally strained, and financially impoverished. Mm. And and right there, you see kind of an awareness of, you know, we, um, I think when you look at the story of Genesis, you know, maybe you've taken Ian Proven or some of the right. other um, uh, great uh, teachers of that material. Um, Lauren Wilkinson's classes on creation remind me of this. You know, we made in the image of God are, are relational beings, you know, imaging a relational triune God. And those relationships take up primarily four different directions, right? We're, we, we relate to the Father <laughs> vertically. We, uh, we have a relationship um, on a parallel horizontal plane to other human beings, our spouse, our friends, our family. Uh, there's a there's a relationship in a sense down to the rest of creation. You know, mm. we're the, the image bearers of creation to God, just as mm-hmm. uh, He is, uh, we are to Him. And um, and then there's a relationship with ourselves. Um, you know, that sort of emotional, psychological sense of health. And you can see all four of those domains right there in that purpose statement uh, mm. for why was chartered. And so, just to make a long story short. Um, you know, we, we seek to care for the whole person who walks in the door and mm-hmm. I'll tell one quick story to kind of illustrate yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a student, um, shadowing like those disciples shadowing Jesus and John nine, uh, our founder, uh, Dr. David Gregory, uh, at that point, Salome had stumbled onto a population of Vietnamese refugees who, mm. um, were not the designated uh, group, people group that was sought to be cared for at Salome, but you know God's providence sort of led us to this group. And at that time, a majority of the patients coming uh, and after hours, Saturday mornings were were Vietnamese former refugees. And uh, I, I'd grown up in Nashville, I had no idea that there was this uh, large growing group here in town. And, and we saw a woman who had been screened for cervical cancer just a couple of weeks before at the evening clinic. It was my job to go in with the doctor as a student and, and share with her her normal results. So very common, straightforward, low-hanging fruit kind of encounter mm-hmm. for the medical student to take on. And I had to use an interpreter. So this is part of mm-hmm. the way we work. And as I shared this result with this uh, young 30-something woman from uh, from Vietnam, she started to weep mm. and even got mm. down on one knee as she was trying to collect herself. Mm. It, and I, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and, you know, it's rare that a doctor doesn't fill yes. the, the room in the silence with more words, you know, but uh, a miracle happened and we didn't say anything for a little yeah. bit. You know, as she gathered herself, um, I asked, well, why are you crying? And, uh, and it turned out they were tears of, joy for her Mm. because she had been told that she had cervical cancer in Vietnam. And at that time and in that place, that was a death sentence. You know, there were, there was no treatment that she could avail herself of. And, and it's easy to make a mistake or there's a continuum of cancerous changes that could take place in the cervix. So I could see how she might've maybe even heard wrong, Mm. but the bottom line is she'd been living with a death sentence over her head as a Mm. young woman had moved to the United States And she lived within uh, a mile or two of three different medical centers. And and I said, well, how long have you lived here? And she said, two years. And I was like, well, why did you come to see us now? And she said, well, I heard that you loved your patients here. Oh. Mm. And, and, (laughs) you know, I was starting to appreciate, you know, 
she didn't just mean that she got a hug on the way out the door, mm. although she did, you know, yeah. but, uh, but, but it was the fact that we had enough time to talk, to get to the bottom of it, to use an interpreter who spoke her language. She'd watch people go bankrupt in her community wow. from the costs of uh, being sent to an emergency room and mm. sent home with a big bill that they couldn't pay. Uh, people treated and misunderstanding their diagnosis and not taking the treatment correctly. And for them, it was just better to stay away. You know, mm. it was safer. You know, But she had heard a rumor um, in her community about a place where um, people in need uh, were loved. And, mm. uh, and that, that was a powerful lesson for me as a young physician in training, it doesn't matter um, what you know, unless the patient knows how much you care. Mm. Um, and in the willingness you have to go beyond the barriers, they're always there. There's some barrier uh, to help address the whole person needs underneath this. So mm. um, for her, that was a powerful paradigm for me of what um, of what whole person care looked like. Mm -hmm. So on an average day, it could look like any variation of that. Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, uh, it's about relationships. Yeah. It's about love. Um, and, and sometimes it's very immensely practical, you know, having yeah. a sliding scale, you know, being open after hours, nobody turned away because of inability to pay, mm. you know, working around the, the high cost of pharmaceuticals to make a way to find a, a low cost alternative, you know, not just prescribing what's the latest, greatest thing, but finding that low cost opportunity for them that, that will have a similar benefit for them. Yeah. So lots of dimensions uh, that I could talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is, that's such a beautiful story, Morgan. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I, like, I was like choking up. Like I was like, yeah. oh, that's just, it's so beautiful. Um, um, and kind of thinking about sort of about health, uh, sort of, you know, in that same sort of, in a sort of a broad way, uh, you have this the, the kind of model called the integrative behavioral health model. How, talk to us a bit about that and how does that fit in with this sort of whole person care that you're talking about? Yeah. Well, from the, you know, the earliest days uh, noted, you know, that emotionally strained component was always yeah. there, something we wanted to recognize, attend to. Uh, but in the early days, we all, you know, the provider did it all, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would um, address the social needs, find the medicine, you know, take the vitals. Uh, so it started as a volunteer-driven um, uh, health ministry and has gradually grown over the years. We now have 55 staff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, five or 6,000 patients, individual patients a year at two locations. Um, but back then, you know, we each did our own part to address the whole person needs. But as we've grown, we've been able to add components to the team and, and we function more like an interdisciplinary team. Um, and, you know, in many ways, it's like a microcosm of the body of Christ, right? The, the hand and the foot and the, and the head, they all, they all need to work and do their own role. And, and so every team member at Salome is committed to care for the whole person, but we each mm. lead with a unique training and expertise. Mm. And the behavioral health consultant is a role that we um, discovered and cultivated here probably 15, 16 years ago after experimenting with having volunteer psychiatrists or counselors come to help augment the emotional needs of the patient. And what we realized is that our mental health system is so fragmented, uh, at least in our country, uh, that you know, getting the kind of case management, the follow-up, getting a referral into an office with somebody, and then somebody who could speak the language or use the interpretation yeah. to get at the heart issues was quite a challenge. 
And uh, what the genius of the behavioral health consultant integrative model is that it, it takes a, a mental health professional with not uh, highest, highest level training, but, you know, maybe a master's of social work, you know, somebody who has uh, a certain understanding of um, psychological health and social work also helps as well. And then we retrain them to unlearn the way they've been taught to practice in a fee-for-service setting. And instead of focusing on diagnosis and hour-long appointments and tell me about your childhood, to being available at any given moment during the day with nobody on their schedule, but fitting into the care of primary care patients. And so when I see a patient who I recognize is dealing with stress uh, from the psychological adjustment to a new culture, uh, being separated from family, COVID-19, you name it. Um, and it's affecting their sleep patterns, which are affecting their uh, chronic uh, migraines, which mm. are affecting their ability to do their job. Um, you know, I can begin to address some of those issues, but with a behavioral health consultant, I can say, I want to, I want you to talk to Rebecca. She's a team member of mine. She's going to help you understand some of the connections between your mind and your body uh, and some basic free steps you can use to begin addressing those. Mm -hmm. So her job is to come into the room right there, not have to go wait or drive right. across town or wait three weeks for an appointment and see that patient right then and help them get through the week. Yeah. That's the it's the time frame we're focused on. And she can address or he, as the case might be in the model, but, um, you know, everything from smoking cessation, other types of behaviorally driven health mm. problems, uh, obesity, diabetes uh, control, you know, somebody who's got a, a phobia of insulin and yet mm. desperately needs it to help mm. manage their diabetes. Um, and, and we can work through some of these barriers in a team fashion, and she may in turn hand off to another professional on our team uh, mm. for a different angle or pursuit, say the pharmacist or a pastor or a social worker. Um, and so uh, not every patient needs to see every one of those um, team members on every visit, but they're all available um, if we do. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really offloads you know, the, the burden and spreads it and shares it through a team. Uh, and so it's a little bit sort of undermining that doctor is heroic uh, savior, you know, kind of yeah. complex and, mm -hmm. and utilizing the gifts of a broader team. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. How, you, how, just, oh, sorry, how big is the team, Morgan? Like how many people have you got in your team of people that are around sort of all day? How does that work? Yeah, uh, it's alluded to. We've you know maybe got fifty five staff right now, but that okay. includes everybody from yeah. to nuts, our yeah, development right. team, administrative, patient mm -hmm. relations. There are three other physicians uh, okay. on staff yep. with me. Um, we have five mid level providers, so a okay. nurse practitioner or yep. a physician assistant. Uh, which can, you know, with a little bit less training, but under a physician supervision can do a whole lot of patient care management. And then uh, nursing staff of up to seven or eight, uh, augmented by volunteers. So we, we are now staff driven. You know, we've mm. grown the budget. We've, by God's grace, you know, been able to help uh, increase the resources coming in. But we still depend on a lot of volunteers to augment our yeah. care, mm. particularly with specialty care. So that's something right. that's often really hard to come by for the uninsured. That's our focus 
is to to care for those who have nowhere else to go. Mm. Um, and um, and so we have volunteer specialists and probably a dozen subspecialties who come on site at our main office. Um, and we try to manage as many conditions as we can on site uh, yeah. just because we've got the interpretation and yeah. the comfort level and the, and the cultural competence here. Uh, but when necessary, we have partnerships with local hospitals and other specialty groups uh, to refer out when we need to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you mentioned language barriers and uh, tra- translators. Are you working with various populations uh, around the globe and and how many? Yeah, well, um, I mentioned how early on, you know, the uh, the population that the founders thought we would be reaching out to ended up not showing mm. up nearly as much as a group of Vietnamese refugees. Yeah, yeah. And they ended up telling two friends and they ended up telling two friends and so on and so on. Until by the time I joined the staff in 2000 as the first you know, full time staff physician, uh, there were 100 nationalities coming to this little tiny 1000 square foot renovated apartment space uh, clinic. Um, and over the years, that numbers fluctuated up and down It's you know, on a given year, it's probably uh, 90 or so, 80 or 90 countries, probably 70 languages spoken by our patients. Uh, I only speak about 30 or 40 of those languages. You know, I need interpretation to help with the others. So for those who can't see my face, I'm totally kidding. I, I speak just enough Spanish and English and uh, French to get around basic complaints. But um yeah, so we we do have a lot of bilingual staff, especially in Spanish and Arabic, which are the two largest right. language groups in our population now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we depend on either volunteer interpreters for the other languages, or we con- we work with a local medical center. We have a partnership to tap into their language line program, uh, and mm-hmm. so we use uh, telephone-based interpretation when we have to. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I mean, just touching on being culturally inclusive, like not only the language barrier, but there's also oftentimes, even in healthcare, especially like education barriers. Uh, I wonder if you have dealt with this, but even in the midst of a pandemic with so much information out there, like how do you navigate that? Yeah, every day uh, presents its own challenge. Um, yeah. You know, we've over time built, you know, it certainly helps the more you have congruence between the the, the staff giving care and the patient mm-hmm. receiving it. That certainly helps break down. And, and there are a lot of clinics that may focus on like one language group, particularly like a Spanish or large uh, population. But because we have so many different languages and ethnic groups represented, really, there's no way to be a master of any of them. So no, yeah. I'm a little I'm a little sheepish about the term cultural competence just because. Mm-hmm. It implies a certain degree of uh, skill and competence <laughs> yeah. in, in all the different cultures that we care yeah. for. We yeah. like the term cultural humility um, because yeah. it keeps us grounded in the fact that all medicine is cross-cultural. Um, mm. And sometimes we see that get cultural gap more uh, vividly uh, than others. Um, but at the core of it, you know, you're making sure there's mutual understanding. So that mm. idea of language concordance. Uh, but think about it yourself. You've been to the doctor's office probably in your mm-hmm. life and left confused by what yeah. was just, there totally. were terms used yeah. that you didn't understand. There were assumptions maybe made in the course of conversation that you didn't share with the people in the white coats. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, that's that's a universal need in, in medicine and healthcare is to mm. be linguistically uh, uh, sensitive and understand. Sometimes time and space are construed differently in different cultures. So the, yeah. the idea of an efficient uh, throughput in a yeah. practice, which is conventional to a lot of Western and especially American healthcare, uh, flies immediately in the face of what fosters healing, especially uh, with a lot of our patients coming from warm cultures, so to mm, speak, from the global yeah. south, where it's all about time and relationship. And so mm, we yeah. don't have all day with every patient, and they all have places to go and work to do as well. But by and large, we, we budget longer visits uh, with our patients, in part to get through the language interpretation if it's needed, but also just to ensure that there is a, a quality of relationship mm. there, mm. trust. And boy, has that proven helpful during COVID, right? Oh, so we've, we've seen, you know, a uh, tremendous uptake, willingness to uptake the vaccine, mm. uh, in our, which is counter to the narrative of a lot um, mm-hmm. that you would expect out there um, among some linguistically isolated groups. Yeah. But in part because there's an existing relationship of trust yeah. uh, with yeah. the provider. And so that makes all the difference. We've, we've poured a lot of energy into that, but uh, you can't. You can't speed up trust. You know, that's the yeah. thing you create in a crisis. And so we've been so grateful this past year and yeah. a half, as hard as it has been, uh, we, we there's a deep reservoir of trust with a lot of the communities we serve. So, um, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, these are all, as I, as I teach medical students or talk to our staff or volunteers about this, just remind them, you know, these cross-cultural caregiving examples are, are really just dramatic examples of what all healthcare should be. Yeah. Attentive yeah. to the patient, mm-hmm. attentive to the relationship. Um, and uh, and just remembering that we're in a culture. You know, I, I get yeah. trained in a language and yeah. a set of priorities uh, as a as a doctor. And it, sometimes we our own culture is the most invisible to us, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. So yeah. being married to a Canadian reminds me, even if I look <laughs> like my wife, uh, yeah. you know, we have very different assumptions about lots of things, you know. And yes. so every day you're navigating that and being reminded, oh, okay, uh, if something goes wrong, maybe there's a cultural mm-hmm. gap or misunderstanding yeah. here. Sorry to interrupt this wonderful conversation, but Claire Perini has something really important she'd like to share with you. Thanks, Nick. I do have something very important to say. Firstly, it's to say thank you to the number of people who listen to the podcast and they they like the podcast so much that they send us emails to let us know or little donations of cashola. Mm. So um so thank you for those who are who have been supporting the podcast but if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been thinking oh, I wonder how Nick gets paid. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cut, Cut that, that out. <laughs> <laughs> So if you've been listening to the podcast and you've appreciated some of the conversations that we've had, we would love you to to let Regent know by sending us an email or sending us a donation. And you can do that on the Regent College website if you go to rgnt.net forward slash give. That's R-G-N-T dot net forward slash give. What a great American, North American accent. Or like some sort of weird <laughs> hybrid accent. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. And if you do give a donation, would you please tell them the podcast sent you? Thanks for listening and for your support. We hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation.
Going into that a little bit more as well, this sort of the kind of the whole person care and then how that looks in in different cultures and different contexts and then the Western thing that we sort of tend to separate sort of mind and body. Do you talk to us about the sort of how other cultures might understand sort of the holistic care and how 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 we as kind of in the Western medical way can be thinking about that and learning from that? Any mm-hmm. examples you can think of maybe to help illustrate that for us? Yeah. Well, I, I do feel like one of the joys of working in a place like Salome is that many of our patients, I would say most of our patients, uh, whether they share our Christian faith or not, we are a faith-based organization. Our mission is to share the love of Christ by serving those in need through healthcare. But we take care of patients from all of all faiths or none. We have volunteers and students and trainees from all kinds of backgrounds. But by and large, regardless of the particularities of the, the religious tradition of patients we care for, they don't dichotomize body and spirit the way mm. Western and particularly American uh, people do. And so it's often, um, I guess, who is it, Jonathan Haidt or has talked about weird cultures, you know, the Western, enlightened, uh, mm. industrialized, you know, I can't remember what the R stands for, uh, democratic cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, we're we're the weird ones. Right, <laughs> uh, right. That, that's the reminder every day at Salome. And so yeah. uh, many of them are dissatisfied with care, even at very elite institutions, because mm. they aren't sort of treated in, or maybe the story, uh, the, the narrative they're bringing isn't respected um, as much. And so, mm. you know, I, I think of um, some practical examples of how our patients see themselves holistically and maybe respond to holistic um, 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 therapies. You know, early on at Salome, we saw a lot, and we still, still to this day saw a lot of patients from Central America, mm-hmm. a lot of women. Uh, and one of our uh, nurse practitioners kept noticing that, you know, whether it was insomnia, hypertension, physical uh, pain complaints, dizziness, um, there were a lot of complaints that didn't seem to respond to conventional textbook treatment and therapies. And eventually, you know, she started seeing this thread of emotional and and psychological stress as a common denominator. And so she started opening up the clinic after hours uh, for some of these ladies just to meet Mm. for a mutual support group uh, Mm. and just to get to know each other. Uh, Many of them were, you know, living very isolated existences and having migrated in um, just in the past year or two building community and then they started turned into a variation of a bible study with a lot of sharing and encouragement and prayer for one another and then they all stopped coming to the clinic um, for appointments because all their symptoms got better (laughs) you just saw the the relational connectional Mm. uh, psychological needs being addressed first and the mind-body connection uh, just playing out in a way that not everyone had every ailment cured, but it was it was dramatic the impact mm-hmm. and and I think over over time I've seen uh, this play out you know in the in the regular healthcare system too. Early mm. on when I was working at Salome, I worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital here as well, just moonlighting after hours. And um, you know I remember I, I, saw, I had one night I was on call and and it was getting quiet around midnight. And I thought I'm going to get some sleep tonight. And, you know I'm going to be able to go and get some rest before a full day of work at Salome tomorrow. Uh, but then the nurses you know notified me that there was a 
a, a patient coming in, I could see them roll their eyes, you know, frequent flyer, you know, boy, this, get ready for this one, this guy. And they knew him well. I'd never met him before. But he was a patient who had had a brain tumor, like an astrocytoma that had been treated, surgically resected, had some radiation therapy and was being followed in the oncology clinic. Uh, but he would come in frequently to the emergency room complaining of different symptoms that often, you know, would get extensive workup, uh, lots of testing and not yield any obvious answer. Uh, and he would go home with some, you know, symptomatic treatment. And so I, you know, did my cursory workup was kind of convinced this was happening again. I was convinced he didn't have any major recurrence of his tumor. There was no obvious change in his physical exam. And I wasn't going to call in the radiologist in the middle of the night to do an MRI, which is what he wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and as I got to bed upstairs, uh, I got the lab results on him and the nurses said they were normal. And uh, I had this sneaking suspicion in my gut, you know, like I could just pass along that information through the nurses. But I, I went I kind of followed my gut. I realized later that this was called conviction of sin. I was I was trying to push off to somebody else the work that I should be doing. Mm. And um, and I went and met with him downstairs and talked to him about his lab results. But then I I kicked him with a uh, a reflex I'd learned at Salome was just to ask him, tell me a little bit about your story, you know. And uh, and as we started talking about his stories from a small town in rural Tennessee, he served in the military for several years, but had struggled to find a job afterwards. And, and it's just part of that history taking. I said, well, tell, tell me a little bit about your faith background. You know, how does that impact your, your health or how do you, uh, how does, how has that shaped uh, uh, your experience of your illness that you've been here for? And I could see him pause and look at me and kind of size me up, whether it was safe. Hmm. And he said, I'm a pagan. I said, oh, wow. That's really, really interesting. I, you know, I wasn't expecting that from rural, right. small town Tennessee. And but then he began to tell me, you know, as I just talked to him, not judgmentally, kind of trying to channel John Nine. Um, uh, he had actually been seeing a New Age healer uh, who had been reading his palms and his energy fields, and had been telling him that he had a recurrence of his tumor, and um, he. Uh, was convinced of it. And that's what drew, led him into the hospital, you know, and that's what led him to come back, you know, multiple times and, and, and drain resources from the federal government that were paying mm. for all this testing and imaging. Um, but as we talked about that, we had a fascinating discussion about, you know, how do you know if something's true? Is a spiritual source of knowledge reliable? You know, mm. I told him, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in God. <laughs> I think he just told me something upstairs that, you know, yes. I need to come down here and talk to you. And he was like, oh, so you're a real Christian. Wow. And that just kind of broke open mm. the door, you know? And so by the end of the time, um, he asked me to pray for him, you know, and, and I wow. told him, this is how I talk to God. I'm happy to pray with you yeah. uh, in Jesus name. Um, but we made an agreement and kind of reached a compromise about some follow-up for him. And I went and wrote my note at the VA uh, hospital and documented the spiritual history on this guy. Um, and mm. just wanted to highlight to the team that was taking care of him that, you know, not only is this more holistic and, and helpful for him as a human being, 
it saves us money. Getting to the root of issues, you know, looking mm-hmm. at the iceberg beneath the surface and not yeah. just the little piece that's visible above the surface yeah. uh, in the long run actually helps our systems yeah. uh, by undercutting some of the patterns that, you know, doctors, we, we're scared to ask about things we're not competent to address, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah. we're not trained well to talk about spiritual issues or social issues often. And so we tend to defer them or just um, focus on what we feel comfortable on. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's addressing the whole person. Um, it's certainly seen in our cross-cultural patients from other cultures, yeah. but it's still just as yeah. relevant for patients who look like us and are, and are, are born and raised in our yeah. own countries. Mm-hmm. Morgan, that's so helpful to hear I, I wonder, though, how you would respond um, because our, you know, our healthcare system is, we're and, and in the Western mindset, we're very efficient. We want to think about kind of productivity, cost-benefit analysis. We're, we're always doing that, which is important. Like there's sustainability to that, of course. But how would you respond to somebody who loves what you're doing, but they're like, we just don't have the time and the resources to to do this, to, cause these relationships you're talking about, this holistic care, it seems to take a little more time than maybe a normal healthcare system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, it does take more time in the short term, mm-hmm. uh, but because, you know, depending on the system you're working in and the way the financial incentives are set up, um, most mm-hmm. American healthcare providers, at least, and I can't speak for the Canadian system, we may talk about that later, uh, are, are incentivized on a fee-for-service basis to mm-hmm. do more in ways that are measurable, procedural especially, uh, and that affects your or your organization's bottom line. Um, and so to go into these areas where the treatment might not be a reimbursable uh, treatment mm. uh, is is just unconscious bias. It's built in against that. Um, but you know, even the most thoughtful, uh, humane, hardworking colleagues I have in other systems, you know, do feel that frustration. And it's one big mm. source of burnout in our profession because mm-hmm. what we went into the profession for most of us is to have those kind of relationships with patients. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a big systemic question. We have our own set of challenges as a nonprofit going out and raising money every year to subsidize probably two thirds of, you know, every dollar we spend, you know, mm-hmm. caring for our patients. Okay. Um, we have to scramble and identify resources, you know, that are not covered by insurance. Um, so we have a set of challenges on top of all the culture barriers. Yeah. We're working every day. Um, but that is at least one uh, joy and opportunity we have in our system is because we're not participating in a perversely incentivized system. We can set up and design systems that that maximize the opportunity for these kind of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things volunteers appreciate. It's one of the things that ruins a lot of medical students and residents who come through and train here. They're like, damn it, I want to work. Sorry about that. I don't want to work in an environment that doesn't allow me to have yeah. this kind of relationship yep. uh, with my patients. Yeah. So um, 
uh, we call it ruining them for careers. Yeah, totally. It's like I'm just. Can I move to? I just want to move to Nashville so that I can just. I just want to be cared for under. The, yeah. The, just, you can, if you're uninsured and have yes, no options. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think just to go back to your story with that gentleman, that vet, veteran, that kind of even answers the question there of like time and resources. Right. That actually it was more beneficial in the long term to spend that time with him, to ask those questions, to kind of draw out what actually is going on there. And that's the big challenge, at least yeah. in American healthcare, is to is to pivot. Pivot's too fast of a word. I mean, it's trying to adapt to yeah. away from a fee-for-service model to yeah. a quality right. model that that it gives some risk, you know. A, Entities that assume the risk of managing a certain population mm -hmm. can reap the benefits when they're healthy in the longer term. But, mm -hmm. but our system is so fragmented. You've got payers and providers, and yeah. uh, that it's been a hard nut to crack. Uh, yeah, a lot of people are working on that. Yeah, I have someone close to me who works in a in a urgent care setting, and just the the challenge and difficulty there with trying to navigate the amount of patients coming in and still provide that care is a, is a big challenge. Mm -hmm. And so I, th I, f I just feel like the, the Western healthcare system kind of like Salome is trying to do in some regards is come back to what we originally started as that is for the health and the benefit of the person. And I think in the long run, that'll benefit providers too Everyone. as well. Right. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Morgan, just kind of thinking about this whole kind of idea of insurance and sort of we've sort of alluded to this and, you know, if, if, I, if we're uninsured, we can come and come and get the best care that you could ever want. Um, the, and it, you know, and, and sort of when you were talking before that, you know, it was really the ministry of the church that that was was providing health care. And, you know, Christians have, you know, have seen that as a priority. But then but the health care is it is confusing and it is expensive. Um, what like how how have how else have you? Like, how does it work? So, so you're saying one, two thirds you're raising, like two thirds of the dollar you're raising. Are you like who's paying? Like who's paying? How's it working? Yeah. Well, I, let me just start by saying you've you've brilliantly summarized American healthcare in three words: <laughs> expensive and confusing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, when I was at Regent from 2009 to 2010. Obamacare was being debated oh, yeah, in right. the United States. And it was so nice to be sort of lifted out of our country's rancor and divisiveness over that uh, and be sort mm. of blissfully, you know, yeah. kind of <laughs> removed in the ivory tower up there. Uh, but it's interesting, while I was there, the, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had some kind of poll of their viewers right. of who the most admired Canadian in history was. Um, and uh, you may have heard about this, but yeah. any guesses as to who that person would be? Um, you know, you think about the U.S., probably Abraham Lincoln or Martin right. Luther King, or who would that person in Canada be? You're asking two, two non-Canadians. We might <laughs> yeah, be yeah. so two non-Canadians. Well, the answer, the answer was Tommy Douglas, okay. who was a member of parliament from Saskatchewan, mm -hmm. a Baptist minister. Uh, who ended up running for political office and introduced the first Medicaid program uh, mm. in a Canadian province and that got nationalized and became the blueprint for the uh, national wow. insurance system in Canada. Wow. Mm. 
That okay. was the person that Canadians voted yeah. the most respected Canadian. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just a fascinating totally. uh, contrast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all that to say that, you know, what happened then in 1961, you know, could not happen today, even mm-hmm. in Canada. Just the no. cost of healthcare no. has, has exploded along with the technology and the, and the powers of healthcare. And, so, and, and plus in the U.S., just the political challenges are, are almost mm. insurmountable. Mm. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, Obamacare, the, the expansion and the Affordable Care Act that, that President Obama got through um, during his presidency did chip away at the problem of the uninsured in the United mm. States pretty significantly. Um, maybe not quite 50% reduction, but a, a very significant reduction in the number of the uninsured but at the end of the day, you know, the majority of Americans still get their health care through uh, private insurance, which by virtue of just a, a historical serendipity is tied to their employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whereas in Canada, you know, there's a, a universal uh, payer yeah. um, and you know, not, a, not necessarily a nationalized health system. That's a different setup like in England. Um, but in the United States, uh, there's a plurality of different payers and majority uh, and those who are most connected and most politically involved, um, you know, have private insurance connected to their job. Uh, And and that was uh, happened during World War II when there were were wage controls and companies were looking for ways to get a leg up on the competition by recruiting scarce workforce. They added health insurance as a benefit. Uh-huh. Because of that serendipity, it's become kind of woven into the fabric of the way we do business. Interesting. It's a it's a horrible way to design a system. You know, it gives tax incentives in the wrong ways. It it uh, people move jobs so much more frequently now, and they're scared to, or when they do, that a new company won't offer them insurance. And so uh, that's a big problem. One of the ways we seek to address it, um, I said previously that we focus our care on those who have nowhere else to go. So we will commit for those seeking care at our main facility to meet with them with a a health assist specialist, a navigator, somebody who's trained in the healthcare systems access, Mm -hmm. um, and to walk them through, look at their financials and help them decide if they qualify for a Mm -hmm. Medicaid program, uh, Medicare, Mm -hmm. uh, or an Obamacare expansion uh, subsidized health insurance plan. And if they do, we'll help them apply for it, get connected and resource to a uh, a clinic w- that would take that insurance. But if they don't, if they, they're undocumented, they, there's, they don't have the, they fall in a bubble financially where they don't qualify for yeah. subsidies or uh, they're not medically able in a state like Tennessee, which has not expanded our Medicaid program. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't uh, have access. Then that's who we will prioritize care yeah. for. And in turn, we'll commit to charge them just on a slotting scale according to what yeah. they can pay. Right. And then we will fundraise for the difference, you know, yeah. between mm-hmm. foundations, individuals, churches. Um, so that's, uh, it's not the answer for the American mm-hmm. healthcare problem. Mm-hmm. It's not a scalable uh, answer, but it's a, uh, it's a, like a prototype. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's a glitch in the matrix of, mm-hmm. of our broken healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Like give a taste uh, um, of what, uh, we originally started as and what mm-hmm. we need to move back towards. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, totally. 
Oh, Morgan, but just as we sort of wrap up, you, you're so positive about all of this, right? It's really complex and it's like you're kind of speaking with people who are coming from all sorts of, with all sorts of hard realities. What sort of sustains kind of hope, both for this model that, as you say, is like a glimmer of hope in a kind of a, whatever, the, whatever that beautiful thing said that you can't, now I can't repeat it, within a kind of a fragmented and a fractured healthcare system. What mm. gives you kind of hope to, to keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I've said it in just passing before, but our, our mission is to share the love of Christ by serving those in need through healthcare. And you can't share what you don't have. Yeah. And sharing is not a one-way street, right? So when we share something, when we're communally participating in something like God's love, um, it kind of splashes back and forth. Uh, it gets everybody wet. Um, and so the thing that I think sustains our team, and I can speak for myself, but I think I speak for many on our team as well, is consciously participating in the grace of God going mm -hmm. forth um, is, uh, is, is the reward itself. Um, yeah. you know, so each day, you know, you think of Matthew 25, the the admonition that Jesus gave the story of the sheep and the goats, you know, that as you care mm -hmm. for that person who's in prison or sick or poor, you're caring for me. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, the, the times where I've been at the end of my rope, we're fitting in one more patient that day. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I'll ask somebody uh, at the end of a, a visit, you know, would, can can we pray? Would it be? Would you like to to pray together? And they turn and put their hand on me mm. and pray for me. You know, for God to sustain me, to bless mm. us. Um, just yesterday, I had a uh, a young twenty something Egyptian uh, woman come to my office just to tell me um, the impact that Salome had had on her life, wow. not as a patient, but as a one of our volunteer interpreters, um, wow. starting in college and then since then. And how she's lived the immigrant journey. She's had to uh, not pursue a career in medicine initially because she needed to work two jobs to pay for her family. And yet everywhere along the way, she kept remembering what she'd seen, yeah. the power of those encounters uh, of, of human connection, uh, experiencing God's love in real time, in real practical ways, and, mm. and how she is you know, recommitted herself and gone back and gotten a BSN in nursing and wants to get a practice degree. Um, so it's when I think people come back and share stories like that. Yeah. Um, how God's love is just kind of rippling out through mm -hmm. the whole thing. Um, so that, that sustains me knowing that, you know, as we like to say, there is a savior and he is not me. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, uh, yeah. we get to participate, you know, it's not all up to us. We're all in, but, yeah. but he's even more all in, yeah. um, in the work um, yeah. and provides year over year uh, for our needs, even as we kind of waver in unbelief yeah. about whether yeah. he will. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, Morgan, what a great place for us to, what yes. a great place for us to end. Thanks, Thanks so much for your time and for, mm -hmm. yeah, for your investment over a long period of time in this, this good kingdom work. It's so, such a joy to be well, talking it's a with pleasure, you. Pleasure to talk about, you know, we're at Siloam Health, uh, S-I-L-O-A-M health.org and mm -hmm. there's stories and anecdotes. Uh, you can learn more there. Yeah. Totally. Thanks, Thanks Morgan. Morgan.
Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.